Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's what I saw on fucking mushrooms. Mm. Sorry. It's Postmates. It's Postmates, guys. I needed coffee. I needed coffee. Yeah, let's go for it. Let's Postmates. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Feminist Don't Wear Pink podcast based on the book Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies. I'm your host, Scarlett Curtis. I'm a writer, activist, proud feminist and curator of our book and host of this podcast. Today's guest is a really exciting one. At the end of last year, I sat down with writer, director, actress and artist Lena Dunham in her parents' New York apartment to talk feminism, politics, public scandal, illness, drugs, bodies, and much, much more. I first met Lena when I was 18 years old, and it's been a real honour to watch her career over the last seven years. She's a brave, fascinating, ridiculously intelligent woman who's been through more pain than any one human deserves. And while she may have made some mistakes over the years, as have we all, I know that I wouldn't be the feminist I am today if it wasn't for her. Just to warn you, we recorded this on some slightly dodgy equipment that I bought very much on the fly in Manhattan, so if the sound quality isn't quite right, I very much apologise and I promise we will be back to normal next week. For now, please enjoy my interview with Lena Dunham. Um, Hi Lena Dunham. Thank you for being on our podcast. Hi, Scarlett Curtis. What an honor. Um, we're here in your lovely house. Um, Thank you. So it's my parents' house, which is embarrassing that I had you over to my parents' house, but that's where I'm staying right now, and no, I just have to be honest. my favorite thing. I've just moved out, and I still invite people over only to my parents' house, because yeah, I prefer seeing them there. It's because cozier. They, yeah, and if they come to yours, you're on your own, so if you decide you don't like them, then it's really bad. And also, it's just too much in your space. I find it easier to remove myself when in my parents' home. I have, in fairness, been staying here because my apartment's being painted. But my friend came over and she was like, I think you like living in this storage room. And I was like, I think I do. Yeah, I think it's much nicer. I think I really do. Um, I When they moved to New York, I tried really hard not to live with them. And then my apartment got a cockroach infested and I moved in. It was the best thing ever. Oh, my God. What a dream. Um, so... We're here to talk about feminism. Which is a topic that's really important to me. And it's a very, today, day after the American election, it's a weird time to talk about feminism. And it's a weird cultural time to talk about it. So I've been really preparing myself to go in deep with you, Scarlett. I'm really excited. Um, I think everyone feels like they know a lot about your feminism. But actually, a lot of it's just what's been placed on you. When do you think, when did you start calling yourself a feminist or were you always a feminist? I don't ever remember not being a feminist. Mm. And that's because of my mother, whose table you set out right now. It was such a big... It's a real real feminist table. (laughs) We are at a feminist folding table. And 
that was just such a huge part of the way that she moved through the world Mm. because of her identity as an activist in the 70s because of her identity as a woman in the very male-dominated art world that was just a label she placed on herself so you know she was part of a feminist group called WAC Women's Action Coalition which was a downtown New York group of artists who met you know monthly and then attended marches together and you know did everything from you know I was part of a march to you know uh make sure that uh a con edison plant didn't move into our block amazing (laughs) uh so I knew a lot about radiation at an early age and then you know a march to defend a you know women's health clinic my mom went to buffalo and I remember her telling me that they all held hands around an abortion clinic to stop activists one of her friends broke their wrist like it's just from someone bashing into it like there was the fact that being a feminist was cool but the fact that being feminist was also hard was something that I feel like was always in my consciousness yeah did did that ever did you ever because my mum raised me in a very feminist way but never said she was a feminist that's why your mom's so like um your mom has a very low-key classiness my mom is a at her core though she's very elegant is a loud Jewish woman from Long Island so she Amazing. let me know what yeah. I was all the time do you think you ever did you always know that was going to be a part of your job and what you were going to do no, I think that I didn't start thinking that feminism would be a part of my job or my public identity until I realized not every woman considered themselves a feminist and not every man had respect for feminism. Like, yeah. I'd like met stupid boys before who said like, you know, feminists don't wa- shave their legs or whatever. Like, But then I went to this super liberal college in Ohio where basically no one did shave their legs and you know, the hottest girls were also the most activist girls and the hottest boys had nothing to do with the football team. So like my conception of the world was like the louder you are about who you are and the clearer you are about who you are, the kind of like more people are going to understand and connect to you. But when I first got into being, you know, when I first got into quote unquote show business and I was a public figure, I remember talking to people who didn't seem to have any conception of feminism as part of their identity And I was also understanding, oh my God, there's actually not as much space for me and for women like me in the world as Mm. I understood it. And then I started to understand, oh my God, it's actually pretty okay for me, but for women who aren't, you know, um, successful white women from New York City, it's really bad. So it was this gradual education that I'm still receiving. I mean, like I'm working on a script about a Syrian refugee woman right now. And like, this is a whole new um level for me because I'm having to understand her strength and her resilience and her experience but I don't need to impose the title of feminist on her because that's not her yeah identity even though to me her actions protecting herself saving a child getting out of a country where there was no respect for her identity is a very feminist action yeah completely and I sometimes think that's where the messages of feminism have gone a bit wrong because we don't equate those actions which are inherently feminist to the movement in some ways yeah and it's also a weird time because you must feel this you're a big feminist voice and you're how old are you scarlett 23 you're a baby i'm a a decade older than you almost and the thing about what you're doing is you're very bravely talking about feminism with a lot of different people who are going to have different opinions and you know that like feminists are tough and they and you can Mm. get your you can get you know your ass handed to you when you don't necessarily even think you're saying anything controversial and so like 
it's a scary time also to debate yeah hey what's the movement doing right what's the movement doing wrong but we have to yeah do you something that drives me crazy about the way people kind of reacted to girls was like the people that made breaking bad i don't think we're ever asked in an interview about like the growing opioid crisis in america and what they had to say about drug control and from the second you started making tiny furniture and girls you were kind of making these feminist statements and then as you were saying they either like lined up well or lined up wrong but it was all became so political did you ever expect that was going to happen before it happened i did not think that i was making something that had any political implications whatsoever so mad i was like it might be interesting to people that these this girl isn't skinny or she isn't whatever and she gets naked but like no i was fucking in the dark and like for me that was a really big awakening whereas I was like where I was like when you're a woman and you make things you better fucking be ready to defend them yeah or just decide you're not going to talk and I've never been the person who can decide I'm not going to talk like I'm not Angelina Jolie I'm not chic enough to be like excuse me but like you know I'm busy like taking a boat back and forth to Vietnam to rescue people (laughs) I'm not in a position I don't want to discuss my film like I can't do that so for me also as I learned publicly and by the way I am not saying that I got everything right but I grew up in a really I grew up in the New York art world which historically which is changing now was a super white super affluent world where everyone thought the thing they were doing was the most important thing in the world and then in front of the world I mean what felt like the world it was actually you know a couple hundred thousand viewers a week (laughs) I grew and changed and realized, oh my God, there's people outside of me. Oh my God, there's women who don't look like me, but have feelings like me. There's women who look like me, but don't have feelings like me. There's women who don't, you know, live in Texas and have a different experience. There's women who live in Mexico and Syria and, you know, Nigeria. And like suddenly my brain was exploding open, but there wasn't room to like, there wasn't that much room to grow. And yeah. so I felt very like, um, I felt like a weird bonsai tree. Like I was like, I'm being kept at this little size. And a huge part of the last few years for me has been like, people say, oh my God, you broke up with your boyfriend. You broke up with your producing partner. You lost your uterus. You've been sick. Da, da, da. Has this been the worst period of your life? And I'm like, no, it's been the best period of my life. Because when you have a bunch of tragedy, people give you fucking room to breathe and to change. Yeah. And you do change. I think... I something we talk about I was really ill when I was younger and I think when I met you I remember being told I remember reading your blog and someone saying well Scarlett's very sick she does all these crafts and baking and has all these and you've been such a role model to me in keeping an identity and staying connected when I don't feel like myself but I think that's amazing and I I don't know if that's true but I think you something happens when your body is in pain where you do have to learn and grow and change so quickly because you don't have what you've always relied on anymore and what most people most people walk around in bodies that are fine and then that's kind of the comfort and I think your brain has to mold itself in a completely different way when your body lets you down 100 percent 100 percent and it's um it's a weird thing. You and I have talked about the fact that pain changes the way your brain works. Completely. Completely changes it. Your body just completely shifts. And it's a lot. It, it, um, I mean, right now today I was going to come visit you at your studio, but I had to lie down for the day. I just didn't have a choice. 
and that feeling of your body just letting you know like okay you don't have an option this is what's going down is intense it's intense but at the same time you come to like you come to um know the inside of your own mind in a very new way and this is really weird and you're obviously still in pain so it's but there was and this is something that's taken me so long to kind of talk about or get out but there was something in me I find it hard knowing how to live when my body isn't dictating those things like I spent so many years with that with like I can't do this I can't do this I can't do this and there's something overwhelming about suddenly being back in the world and like being able to do all the things how long have you been back in the world now so I got out physically out of pain when I was 18 or 17 and a half just almost 18 and then kind of had this where I thought I was completely fine like you know I used to dream about running through or actually I would never let myself think about what it would feel like to move but like I was like it's going to be the best time ever blah, blah, blah. and then had a complete breakdown and then yeah. couldn't leave the house again for two years and then when I was like 19 almost 20 I kind of started to come out of that wow. um but it was almost the same amount of time getting over the mental not that it's going to be the same for you, but no, for I me, mean, I think because I was so young, it took me the same amount of time that I was in pain to get over what it was like to live Also, we're just starting as a culture to talk about trauma. And that's yeah, something... Yeah, and women's pain, I think. Women's pain, trauma, it's something that has such a massive effect on who we are and what we do and what mm. we can do. But it's, it's hard. And um, I feel like I just keep going, it's hard, it's intense, but like... Trauma is something that we used to attribute to war vet, to male war veterans. Yeah. We didn't understand that like, you know, or women who had been through things we couldn't imagine. But there's some women who are living with trauma because they've been through things we can't imagine. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. My mom said this thing to me when I was a kid. Her therapist had said it to her because I was like, Kim, I was saying something. I was like, I know that my problems don't matter because there's kids who have no food. And she said, problems are relative. I, th- that's like my catchphrase of life. It doesn't, I don't believe it helps at all. And I think you have to be sympathetic to everyone's pain and everyone's problems. And people used to say it to me, they used to kind of like show me documentaries to try and make me feel better that I had like a house and was obviously really privileged within what I was going through. And it never helped. I was just like, now I'm super sad that there are children starving as well as, as super well sad as about super myself. sad that I'm stuck in bed yeah. with pain. <laughs> yeah. It was We doubled down. And now it's so great to me that when you, now that you're out in the world, why, I'm going to turn the tables for a sec. <laughs> now that you're back out in the world, what is it that made you want to think about feminism as your... I think I didn't, it was only connected to my pain. So I think I didn't realize that a lot of the way I was treated within my pain was because I was a woman. Um, because every appointment I went to was with my mum. And that was what happened every time. And we weren't believed again and again and again and again. And I was told I was crazy and I was put on antidepressants and antipsychotics. And, you know, we recommended, we'd go to these appointments where like I'd have all my blood taken out and then reinfused and like all this mad stuff. And then we'd get to the end and they'd be like, we think you need family therapy. And in the end, there was just a problem in my back. And I think realizing that it's all selfish almost. It helped me so much. Like, understanding feminism and you were a huge part of this and everything that I read at that time and watched at that time realizing that what I was going through I thought it was my fault and realizing that it was part of this bigger system that actually did make me feel connected and made me feel like my pain was in this framework of women across the world that were not being believed and were being treated badly and I think 
also something that pain does is it does put everything in context a bit and I can't really imagine like doing much else at least now I hope that when I'm like 50 I'll be like painting silly pictures and selling them for millions of pounds you know like it's like but I think now it feels like it's your mission it became your mission and and I think that's mission-driven work no matter what it is is the most beautiful Mm. thing we can do and the most connected thing we can do and you know the one time I took mushrooms in college (laughs) it was not my drug of choice I remember saying to my boyfriend at the time like oh my god I was like I'm part of this line of women they come before me and they'll come after (laughs) like that's what I saw on fucking mushrooms Mm. sorry it's postmates it's postmates guys I needed coffee I needed coffee um so you we've got the coffee now got the coffee and the paleo bread um what way through girls did you start to get ill i was always sick but i didn't know i just thought i was like a weak person Mm. i was like i'm just a person who can't do that many things yeah i'm a person who can't go out in the sun i'm a person who can't hang out i'm just like a weak person did you also think, I used to think they were anxiety symptoms. Yeah, I was like, I'm yeah. anxious weekly. Yeah. And then... And I cancel everything because I'm a bad person. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I cancel everything because I'm not a good person and nobody really likes me. So why would I go out anyway? Yeah. And then it was after the fourth season of Girls that I... Yeah, it was right after the fourth season of Girls that I had my first surgery and started to be really... To really not do well. And how... Because what... You everything you I mean I don't know exact details but you've written incredibly about it and it does there's a lot in the book actually about kind of womanhood and your body and we've got an amazing writer who is called Tasha and she runs this thing called the Pants Project and she when she was 16 she found out she was born without a womb and wow. has kind of created this whole platform and person around what it means to her to be a woman without that that's been a big how a big thing for me yeah i think it's so amazing the idea of being born without one is fascinating because mm. in a sense i was born without one because i had one that didn't work mm. and i had one that shouldn't be in my body um do you think it was ever because you you know you are to so many people such a like feminist icon and a female icon and going through that did it ever feel misaligned or do you think it helped you kind of understanding when I was going you know. to so many healers mm. and whatever and trying to figure out what was going on with me before I got a hysterectomy and was like, okay, I'm going to face the fact that I have endometriosis. I have fibromyalgia as a result of my endometriosis. I have an inflammatory condition. I'm sick. Done. Mm. Before that, it was really, um, it was like touch and go. And I was seeing all these healers and somebody said to me, well, I think because of this guy, obviously it was a guy, it was like, because of your work, and you put complicated messages about women into the world and your feminine organs are eating themselves. You're attacking yourself. <sighs> and at the time I was like, oh my God, like it's too much of a coincidence that I make all this work about being a woman and my, yeah. even though it's like one in 10 women have endometriosis, obviously like. I was told that I was in pain because I was at a pressurizing school and I was too close to my parents and I didn't want to go to university and I didn't want to be at the pressurizing school. So my brain had invented pain. Yeah, like that's insane. Like I remember when I had OCD as a kid, I went to see a therapist and he was like, you're a precocious child. And so you you were anxious about being special and you're subverting your anxiety. Mm. Like 
That's not how it works. Never. And they'd, they'd never say that to a man either, No, they'd be like, enjoy your pressurizing school, bud. It's mad. How do you handle the criticism just in everything? Because I think you have got it in a different way than anyone I know has gotten it or anyone in the public eye. I definitely have to say, I used to be like, we all get criticized. Now I'm like, no, I've gotten some special criticism. And yeah. some of it's been deserved and some of it hasn't. And some of the criticism I've gotten has been because... I had earlier criticism. Like, it all feeds on itself. I think that learning to handle criticism, I used to say, like, I don't read reviews and it doesn't matter to me. Obviously, that's not true. That's not how life works and that's not, and it's not true. And also, because you're not Angelina Jolie and because you don't separate yourself, you're always in it. That's what amazes me. I think so many people in your position would have just been like, I am never talking to the public ever again. I'm going to delete every social, I'm going to delete everything. I'm furious. I'm giving up. Yeah. I think that you're 100% right. And I do think I a little bit run. I've always run a little bit. And I don't think this is a great habit. But it's I've always been a little bit fueled by people's um, like negativity and low expectations. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, enjoy that. I'll do this. Right. Yeah. And then also, I think... I think the only positive of being intensely criticized in your 20s and now 30s as a woman is that like I really have had to hold myself to a very high standard of like intellectual behavior. Mm. I don't hold myself to a very low, high standard of life behavior, but I'm I'm a mess in that department, but I do hold myself to a high standard of of I do hold myself to a high standard in my work mm. and I try to get it right but and I you try th- to make meaningful statements. Do you not think you'd statements. have done that if it wasn't for what happened? I do think that there would have been a part of me and I'm always looking for the positive and everything because I hate regret. Like my mom is a real regretter so my entire life I've always been like no regrets, no regrets. I'm exactly the same. That's so it. My mom regrets everything and I've never regretted anything. My mom's always like we should not have ordered this yeah. and I'm like who cares but like yeah. At the same time, I always agree with her. I just don't want to say it or think it. Oh, I think I've trained myself never to regret. And I also think if Me you're... Me too, because it's too hard, especially if you're really sick. If like, you're sick, I think it gets rid of it because you're like, I could never have changed anything. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so... And like I was talking to one of my best friends last night and I said, I don't regret anything anymore. And he said, well, you can't. It's too stupid. Mm. And it's it the is, stupidest it's emotion stupid. in the world. It's a boring emotion. It doesn't do anything. A little regret trains a little regret trains you to be like, okay, I won't do that again. Like that's how I feel about dumb things I've said in the public eye. Like for example, last week there was some hubbub around me writing this script about the Syrian refugee. And I made a choice which I don't usually make, which is I shared one thing, which is that I'm donating my, what I earn to the refugee crisis in Syria. That's amazing. Thank you. I mean that was what I was always planning to do. Mm. So I expressed that. But besides that, I wasn't like, hey, I'm in touch with the girl who had the experience and blah, blah, blah. And da, da. I didn't feel the need to defend myself. I was like, okay, I'm going to go write this thing. Yeah. And you guys can decide based on an actual script and like totally find the like tweet that I did when I was 25 that was like ignorant about Muslim head coverings and totally throw that out there. And that's totally your prerogative. And I did do that. And I'm sorry. But hey, what's a better way to educate yourself than to immerse yourself in a refugee crisis that is far from your home and far from your life? Mm. Educate yourself and educate other dumb white people. Like what could be what could be a better reaction? That's my reaction to regret. Yeah. It's like I'm going to make something that explains to you guys a new reality. And 
that's how I feel generally. Like even like um like getting out of a long relationship, I could have I look back and I'm like I could have not gone on that work trip and not been mm-hmm. such a bitch about brunch and not to that like but but I also couldn't have because I did the best I could at the time and. Again, one of my best friends who I was talking to last night, and he says to me, his name is Bill Clegg, and he's my book agent, but he's also an amazing writer, and he's written a lot very publicly about his drug addiction. Beautiful writer. And, you know, he did a lot of things that, when he was a drug addict, that he would not do now as, like, an accountable man of dignity and grace. Mm. And he um, was saying to me about a relationship he had that was stupid. He goes, I did. It was the best I could have done. Mm. And I feel that way. And the moments that I really work to change are because it wasn't the best I could have done. Yeah. I did not. I did not do my best. And like, besides that, we just have to live with it. And also like recognizing like, I think a gift of being sick and a gift of being criticized publicly and a gift of being a feminist who feels like the burden of womanhood in an intense way is that I don't look around and see a ton of people who are living glossier or better lives yeah. than me. I don't look on Instagram and go like, oh my God, she's got a matching sweater with her son. I can't believe this. Like, <laughs> And also like, you know, I'm on my own journey to becoming a mother in a very different way, which is actually the first thing in my life. My journey toward motherhood, which I'm like kind of beginning in a different way is like, it's the first thing in my life that I've been like, oh, this is for me. Yeah. This is mine because it's like, I I can give of myself and give of myself, but when it's about becoming a mother, which to me is like one of the most sacred things you can do, it's also sacred to decide you don't want to be a mother, Mm. but I know that I do. And I don't have the luxury anymore of just like, you know, falling pregnant. Like it's going to be a different journey. And it's really beautiful. And it's also, I think, amazing to choose that and to know that you want it and to know that it's a powerful choice that you've made for yourself. The most liberating thing that has happened to me in my life mm. is realizing I don't have to have a uterus and I don't have to be married in order to be a mother. Like I don't, wow. I am a completely, I love my parents and I stay at their house, but I don't need them. Mm. I love my friends and I need them emotionally, but like to be a self-reliant woman is such a gift mm. and, and that makes me feel so much more positioned to give back. Like I'm like, to be a woman who can afford to donate my earnings to Syrian refugee crisis, to be a woman who can afford to, you know, give $50 a month on GoFundMe to a person who I find compelling, to be a woman who can afford to take, you know, trips to learn about the world in different ways, to be a woman who can afford to have weird tattoos and still get a job. I was looking at your tattoos and thinking, (laughs) I'm getting some very stupid tattoos tonight, Scarlett. I'm going to get one tonight. What are you getting? I'm going to get pink. The word pink? The word pink, yeah. So good. I'm getting loads of tiny ones on this arm so I can hopefully have a sleeve one day. Loads of tiny ones is my favorite occupation. Yeah. I'm doing that kind of over here um, tonight. My best friend Scotty and I are getting these outlines of kind of like sensual outlines of women on us. I love And then I'm also that. getting a peace sign and a yin yang. Amazing. I want to get, I've and got a I'm cat getting, here and I'm going to get a cow there. And it's like cat cow in yoga. That's so good. I have my um, sibling's name on my chest. Oh, I um, love that. And then I think I'm going to get my parents' names. Yeah. Well, I quite like... Do you have your dad's surname? Dunham. Yeah, that's why I like having my mom's name on me. Yeah, my because, mom's a Simmons. Because I've got his name in totally. me. Totally. My dad has a funny nickname. His nickname is Tip. Oh, that's sweet. T-I-P. So I always thought Tip would be a cute... That's a nice tattoo. Yeah, a cutie. Um, I, think, I think there's something about pain that makes you very self-reliant as well. 
I think that's what it did to me. Almost too oh, self-reliant. Yeah. I read this book to fall asleep at night. I've like started a new habit because falling asleep is like a torture for me. Yeah, I love being asleep, but falling asleep, like it scares me. I think I feel like I'm falling into death hole. That's what my therapist told me. I don't want to do it. I The rudest thing I do is like make boys I have a crush on talk me to sleep on the phone. Oh my God, I love that. I'm a real man killer. I think that would freak me out though. I think I'd get stressed. I just watch, I have a whole series of shows that I watch because I love them. And then I have a whole series of shows that I watch because they're fall asleep shows. I get it so much. I have a book I read that I love. It's a fall asleep book called Daily Rituals. And it's about the daily rituals of artists throughout history. It's a really, it's by Mason Curry. It's a great book. So I'll just read about like Jane Austen's breakfast. I want that. You'll die. It's so good. Or I'll read about like, you know, like. Did he make them up or does he know them? No, he knows them. So like Jane Austen, like she would write secretly because she didn't want the servants where she lived to see. So like, like the image of Jane Austen hiding her book pages, like in a box is just like. That's amazing. And my true goal. I'm so I'm moving into this new apartment and I can't wait for you to come over. It's the apartment of a lunatic. I have two. Well, they're coming to live here. I have two poodles and three cats. I mean, we have one dog, three cats, two rabbits. And next week, I'm adopting a hairless pug. (gasps) Stop. I didn't even know that was a thing. Are you allergic to hair? No, I just don't like it. Okay. I don't like hair. I like poodle hair, which is not. Like, I don't want any shedding in my house. And also, I just love pets that other people wouldn't not necessarily yes. like I love a pet where people look and they're like ew it yeah. kind of feels like right for who I am me and my godmother used to go around the toy shop and buy the ugliest toy in the whole so shop that no cute. one wanted to buy my mom and I used to play a game that's connected which is there was a ten dollar store this was a big thing in New York for a while was the ten dollar store right not a one dollar store but a ten dollar yeah. store you really were privileged yes really was. <laughs> there was a ten I lived on this weird block in Soho that went before Soho was Soho and it had a video store, a Hasidic undergarment store, um, a Blimpies, which was a sub sandwich place, and a $10 store. And so my mom and I would like do the block. Like on Saturday, yeah. we'd like get our Blimpies and she'd have her coffee and we'd stop into the video store and we'd stop into the Hasidic stocking store. And then the $10 store, we like to play a game where we would assign an event like the Oscars. Yeah. And then you'd have to find what you would wear at the ten dollars oh store. Oh my god, I love that. my mom's big thing that she would do. My mom's like deeply creative. We're in her studio right now. Hopefully, you can feel the vibes. Yeah, I can really. There's feel a lot the of vibes. boxes of art around us. Yeah, and an open safe and a massage table. And a, that's for me. Oh, okay. I'm the asshole who like moved in for two weeks and brought a massage table because <laughs> I have an amazing body worker named Liza who's helping me reconnect with myself. Amazing. Um, cause it turns out the way to reconnect with yourself is massage, not random sex info for the world. Yeah. I haven't tried it either. So I definitely <laughs> I just, I've kind of just not let anyone touch me for yeah, five years. That's a, that's a way too. we can yeah. work into it. My mom's trying to train me to be hugged. I'm going to hug you so hard after this, it's but, um, much. but, uh, my mom was big on treasure hunts. That was a big part of my childhood. Yeah. Like, and I remember like we used to go to the beach and my mom would put like, you know, like a plastic baby, a lipstick, a pair of wings hanging from a tree. Like, and it really, I really did feel because of my mom. That's a big thing. I think, I think I felt like the world was magic and wide open and waiting for me. And so when I found out the world doesn't always have a pair of wings hanging from a tree, but that, and that people aren't always like delighted to see you. Yeah. That was a new information for me, but I've retained that old feeling. I think to go back to the criticism of those, of our many amazing tangents, my friend, likes to say that Lena Dunham suffered for our sins because I do <laughs> think a lot of what you went through went through 
prepared a lot of young girls for what we're going through now what other people are going through now I think you it was like you were the first person in some ways doing or at least getting the attention that you were getting for I what you were doing in a feminist way so kind and I would love to be I would love to be the Jesus of young white feminists just kidding but um just kidding don't quote me. <laughs> um but I I mean it's just it does feel sometimes like I just think seeing the criticism you got made like me and I you know we run an activist thing and do lots of feminism I think it made me and a lot of my friends and the people I work with understand what we were getting ourselves into and how to prepare ourselves for it that's so sweet and you are so pretty and nice and I once (laughs) I once read an article about goop Mm. about Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle website Goop and I think it was Drew Barrymore who was like she went through it for all of us you know (laughs) she went through it first so that we could have our lifestyle sites and we learned from and I was like I'm Goop you're the Goop I'm the Goop of white feminist television I'm the white feminist Goop and if Goop's not the white feminist Goop but it was just like I got that and you know it's very self-satisfied to go like I went first but there are a lot of things that I did that then I feel like I saw happen to acclaim and I'm okay with that like I actually don't need an enormous amount of acclaim like I just need the tiniest amount of acclaim to keep Mm. going like the other day a woman came up to me on this two things happened last week I was outside I was I got my right ovary removed three weeks ago it had lodged itself inside of my abdominal lining and it was fused to my bowel and my kidney and I was in all this pain and it took two months like I started having pain I was shooting a Quentin Tarantino movie and I was working all day and then just like wrapped in a heating pad moaning at night and then finally went to the hospital and they kind of like were like we don't know here's some liquid so here's some pain medicine and an IV we don't know and it took two months for them finally I was like my right ovary really you were like hurts. I'm making a Quentin Tarantino movie it has nothing to do with my inner feminism coming mm-hmm. out I am making such a masculine film there yeah. must be something wrong there must be something yeah. wrong don't worry I'm literally on a Quentin Tarantino set and then I said, can you just do um, a, like a, like a, you know, MRI? Because mm-hmm. I might, oh, right ovary hurts. And they go, well, we actually can't see your right ovary. Are you sure you have one? And so like, they yeah. don't take that out with a hysterectomy. I don't know anything. No, I, I had both my ovaries, but my right way. ovary had lodged itself in my abdominal lining. So I was in crazy pain. And I was going to a lot of doctor's appointments afterwards because I had, they had to check my sutures and make sure everything happened and blah, 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 that I was healing. And I was with my mom and then I got shingles and then I got a burn and I got a staph infection in my burn. Like my body was just like, no more, no Mm. moss. We're not doing this. And I was outside of the Pan Quotidian on the Upper West Side with my... Best restaurant in New York. Amazing restaurant. Love that they show the calories. Even though I don't care about calories, I find it comforting. (laughs) With my mom. And this woman comes up to me and she's like, I had a hysterectomy six weeks ago. We're hister sisters. And for the first time, my mom was like, I get why you share all this stuff on the internet. Because yeah. like a random 45-year-old woman who you, I asked her how old she was, who you don't know, or who probably doesn't even watch your show, just came up and hugged you. Mm. And you guys got to share a moment about how fucking hard it is to have your uterus taken out when everyone's acting like, it's laparoscopic surgery. Mm. And you're like, it changed my life. And then I was with my dad outside of CVS, the best store in New York. And a girl came up to me and she was like, she was like, I love camping. Those reviews are bullshit. <laughs> and I, my dad started laughing so hard. And I was like, look what a beautiful world. That's exactly as much as I need to keep making. I don't need Emmys. I don't need applause. Yeah. I've never gone to the Emmys and had anyone like my dress. I've never gone to the Emmys and had anyone win. I've never won something and not had people criticize my outfit. I've never won mm. something and not had people say my speech was dumb. I've never won something and had people say I didn't that I deserved it. 
and that's okay I also don't think anyone feels anything from those things I think they just pretend to no I loved the opportunity at the DGA awards I thanked my father Steven Spielberg and Ben Affleck I'm not even sure why I thanked I know why I thanked my dad and my dad was in the audience he was like what the fuck is going on when I just moved to New York you very kindly invited me to the set of girls and I have kind of grown up on film sets and going to film sets and I still to this day talk about visiting your set because every set I'd ever been to was very masculine and very scary and I always felt terrified and I always felt scared about being there and everyone was kind of moving around and being quite stressful and your set was just like this zen efficient calm beautiful place of women how was that a real conscious choice and have you been able to take that through with you and everything else you've done here's the thing is I went started making tv after having only ever been on sets I ran in my own house Mm. so it's like I didn't have the experience lots I didn't come up I mean I love that you guys just watched me wipe coffee off my face with Jemima's Union Jack (laughs) t-shirt yeah she's wearing a Union Jack t-shirt Jemima left it and then she was like I don't think this works on me because I'm English you should wear it (laughs) okay hoops in a Union Jack shirt it is but um you know, I'd never been on anyone else's set, so I ran it how I wanted to run it. I was yeah. like, I was kind of like, can you gentlemen step back and be quiet? Can you ladies step forward and tell me what's up? And I mean, I always think about that Kathleen Hanna thing, Girls to the Front, where she's like, you know, having a, she's doing a show and she's like, can the guys step back and the girls please come mm. to the front? Like our set and Jenny was a big part of that too. And I'm sure she'll run her sets this way. Like our, my set was very Girls to the Front. Mm. And that was a really important what do you think I love camping to? What did you want to express with that show that you didn't feel you'd been able to do already? I think for me, camping was a lot about... I wrote camping with Jenny as I was getting a hysterectomy and ending a long-term relationship. Mm. So the questions that were on my mind were like, how are you a person in the world when you have a body and this family you've created that you don't necessarily feel a part of? Um was very much about like the emotional violence that we inflict on each other unintentionally Mm. in the name of like being healthy productive people and as adult women girls is so much about people who don't know who they are and camping is about people who are supposed to know who they are Mm. but are still flailing and for me like I reached this place in my life where I was like I have a successful career I have a beautiful partner who's who's you know great at his job and happy in his life I have a home I have friends and I feel insane all day, every day. Yeah. And the thing that's been so big for me is that I let a lot of that go. Tough things happened in my life. Tough things happened in my career. I, you know, for various reasons and none of them being his fault, I like had split up this emotional partnership, this long-term partnership. And like, that's all really painful stuff. But like, I feel so much less crazy than mm. I used to because I'm living in a way that's like honest and I think if I could like be and tell women anything right now it's like you aren't made real because you've like achieved the milestones that you think you're supposed to like partner work potential baby fertility whatever like that doesn't make you a person and living like a living an intentional life in which you actually ask yourself, what are my values? The ones that I have in it. Because even feminists, lifelong feminists are internalizing other people's values. Yeah. A big thing for me after I got a hysterectomy was, do I actually want kids? And I came to the conclusion, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. But there was eight months in there where I was like, I don't fucking know. Yeah. I have no idea because I've heard so many different opinions. 
I may want to live with a cat on my chest for the rest of my mm. life. And I do want to live with a cat on my chest for the rest of my but life. Also a baby. But also a baby on my vagina. <laughs> yep. And so, no, I have the interesting experience, which is I'll never have a baby touch my vagina. I'll just mm. have a baby. Yeah, but you can lie it on your vagina. The cat can lie on your chest and the baby can lie on your vagina. I think that's going to get me in trouble on the internet. So I think I'll lie the cat on my vagina. <laughs> yeah, and the baby on your chest. <laughs> and the baby on my chest. <laughs> Put the baby in a chair and the cat in a different chair. Um, I just love you, Scarlett. I love you. I've Thank loved you, you since the moment this. I met you. Since before I met you, really. And I'll love you till I die. You've changed my whole life. And I love you a lot. Thank, Thank, Thank you, you for, for being this. here. I'm going to continue to eat my delicious roll. Yeah. And your crazy coffee. And my crazy coffee that I chugged. Good day, Bye. kids. Bye. You have been listening to Feminist Don't Wear Pink, the podcast, hosted by me, Scarlett Curtis. The book is available everywhere books are sold and 10% of every copy goes to the UN charity Girl Up. It's also available as an ebook and audiobook read partially by me if you prefer to listen. If you liked this podcast, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast and it helps us reach people who might not think they're feminists. We'll be back next week with another amazing guest. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a feminist. Have a great day.